RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. development banks and acting as a sanctions officer for the Caribbean Development Bank. Mark, Alex, welcome to the podcast and thank you both for joining me today to explain more about the Nordic Investment Bank to our listeners. Mark, you've had a varied and fascinating career, including initially studying chemistry, then 14 years in the Hong Kong police, before moving to the private banking sector in risk and compliance-focused roles, and then on to the world of international financial institutions. How do you think that the skills that you've developed over the course of your career have helped shape your approach to compliance? Thank you, Alice. With this, it was a matter of investigations within the police. I spent a lot of the time there doing financial crime investigations, fraud, corruption, and money laundering, which is obviously a natural segue into financial institutions and the management from there, which as they developed is also then into compliance. From there, I I moved to the World Bank and where I spent some time doing anti-money laundering technical assistance to governments, to client countries in the developing world. That helped me a lot more understand the challenge that international finance institutions and multilateral development banks face. So it was then a progression in the uh, integrity space, not just doing the investigations, but doing due diligence, which is in some ways a form of investigation in its own right, but slightly different. You are digging into the facts of somebody's background, trying to understand what risks they present. And that has led me through the path of my career over the last 10, 15 years, going through time at the International Finance Corporation, CBC Group in the UK and now at the Nordic Investment Bank. Diving right in, Mark, what is the Nordic Investment Bank's mandate and membership? So Nordic Investment Bank, we are 45 years old this year. We've just passed the anniversary of the 1st of June. We were formed in 1976 with the Nordic countries. We expanded subsequently and now there are eight member governments 
who are shareholders of the Nordic Investment Bank. That's the Nordic countries, which is Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, Denmark and the Baltics of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. With this, we provide a lot of financing with the aim from a mandate perspective of enhanced productivity or climate mitigation. So those are the two factors which are used to evaluate projects and support the rationale for providing finance. We currently just provide debt financing, though that we've had statute changes in the last year or two which may allow us to expand to further products, which we are now looking at taking on board. Predominantly, our lending has been to member countries, certainly over the last five to six years. Over 85% has been to member countries, but we do do lending outside, provided there is some link back to the Nordic and Baltic regions, potentially through a Nordic or Baltic company doing an investment, doing a project overseas. Can you tell me a bit about the bank's size and the diversity of its projects? We're a small organisation. There's just over 200 people made up from actually quite a broad nationality basis in terms of the staffing, though predominantly it comes from the Nordic and Baltic region. But we get experience from all across the globe, from different sectors, which has been very good in allowing us to understand the risks and obviously appreciate risk management from the different dimensions. Mark, as the Chief Compliance Officer, you head the NIB's compliance function. How is that office set up and what is your specific role within that office? The NIP formed the compliance office in 2012, so it's been in existence for eight, nine years. I am the second Chief Compliance Officer. The previous one, Per Eldersovic, set this up. We currently report to the Head of Risk and Compliance, who reports into the President. I also have reporting lines into the Board of Directors and our Control Committee, which is our de facto audit committee. So I've got those reporting lines there. I'm there to obviously manage a lot from the integrity perspectives. We have the due diligence and preventative actions from an integrity perspective. We have, I would say, normal compliance obligations in relation to some activities. We also have the investigative function should cases of prohibited practices, as we refer them, occur within projects that we finance. The compliance office has gone through an evolution as we built up these skills and got settled in our work. We benefit, obviously, in the Nordic and Baltic regions from countries who have great reputations from an integrity perspective. So that actually puts the risks of prohibited practices being quite low. But obviously, it's not something that you can just stop and forget. We need to keep focusing on due diligence side. And with that, it's also about working with clients if we can prevent occurrences of fraud and corruption within the projects that we finance. NIB set up its compliance function in 2012. With that, we've developed one part of that has been the creation of an external sanctions panel that was set up. We have former representatives and chief compliance officers of EBRD and from IFC. So we are bringing in the knowledge from the other IFIs. NIB, we don't go through a lot of investigations because of the size of the operation, because of where we do it. However, we do currently have six debarred parties, which arose from one case which was handled in 2018. 
But as you can see, the scale is far smaller than that of the larger institutions who come across fraud and corruption on a regular basis. My understanding, Mark, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the sanctions panel members are all external to the bank. And so, you know, you mentioned that it's on a much smaller scale, but to be fair to the bank, that is a more developed system than some of its larger cousins. And not that long ago, the World Bank itself had an internal sanctions board, then it became a half internal, half external, and only in recent years has it now become a fully external membership of that board, which of course is an obvious best practice. So a credit to the Nordic Investment Bank, despite its size, has got an all external board, which to some of the listeners might appear the obvious solution, but it isn't the case for all of the larger MDBs. The advantage of coming slightly later and learning the lessons from the other ones. This is why it's an evolution where we learn, hopefully we can strengthen it and everybody heads towards that better standard. global landscape in which multilateral development banks operate, how does the NIB as an investment institution differ from, for example, a development bank? Traditionally, there are five main multilateral development banks and MDBs are a type of international financial institution, which is a slightly broader term. The World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development headquartered in London. The NDB landscape has, in recent years, started to shift, and most notably with the birth of two large Chinese-backed MDBs, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank, or the BRICS Bank, as it is also called. In Europe, there are more IFIs than you might think. So the three European banks that people often refer to are the EBRD, one of the main five MDBs headquartered in London, the European Investment Bank in Luxembourg, which is the EU's investment bank and one of the largest supranational lenders in the world, and then the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, also one of the EU's institutions. But beyond that, there is also IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development that's headquartered in Rome and is a specialised UN agency. And on a regional level, we have the Black Sea Trade and Development Bank in Thessaloniki in Greece and the Nordic Investment Bank and the Nordic Development Fund, both based in Helsinki. So all of these institutions have different mandates, different memberships and different challenges. And aside from the global compared to regional or even sub-regional focus, such as the Nordic Investment Bank, which has got a small membership, the difference between these institutions is often apparent from the name. So MDBs, I mentioned before, are a subset of IFIs. MDBs focus on development projects. So the Nordic Investment Bank's equivalent would be this Nordic Development Fund, also in Helsinki, whereas the investment bank's are different in the projects that they fund, and therefore the nature of the actual bank and the scope of the institution itself is different. But all of them have similarities, including the duty to look after their funds. And that's where some of these common threads are found, whether it's compliance, ethics, sanctions or debarment, or general anti-corruption framework. 
We've spoken about this in other episodes too, but I'd like to now ask both of you, to what extent does the legal, political, cultural and social context of the space in which an international financial institution exists impact on the way in which that IFI operates? Mark earlier mentioned the reduced challenges due to the Nordic Investment Bank's membership. If you are an investment bank and your member states are comprised of countries that are high in the Transparency International Index, for example, where corruption is rarer, then your challenges are different. Equally, if we take the EBRD, so not an investment bank, but one of the MDBs, its mandate initially, when it started off in the early 90s, was to help rebuild and develop Central and Eastern Europe post the fall of the USSR. And so because of that mandate, the EBRD will have a different focus. And although it will be concerned with allegations of corruption, etc., what matters more to it is to fulfil its mandate to finish the projects that it starts. And its aim is not to shut down a project because of an allegation. So if it can be satisfied that there's rehabilitation and that the respondent entity or the company in question that was initially accused of misconduct has put in place various measures, then the projects can continue. Whereas other MDBs, without that sort of scope, may be less likely to see the project through. Because of the different memberships and therefore the different challenges, each MDB or each international financial institution has a different perspective of how it implements and protects its own funds with different focus. So although these systems are not punitive in nature, some institutions will interpret that slightly differently. As far as the Nordic Investment Bank is concerned, a lot of its work deals with preventative measures because, in reality, there are fewer instances of regional companies and individuals who are found culpable of fraud or corruption or collusion because the risk is not as great as, for example, the World Bank or the African Development Bank. Mark, what are your views on this? The one thing that unifies all the IFIs is their legal framework. It's one that they actually have to generate themselves because they are not subject to any national legislation. So they are not able to rely upon that legislative framework, which is why I think has led to a lot of the the MPBs and the IFIs in general to create this way of addressing fraud and corruption. It was Jim Wolfenson, the president of the World Bank in the late 90s, who started talking about the cancer of corruption and what that actually meant in terms of the depleted resources going through to the countries where they're supposed to be, to the damage that is actually done in the economies. I think that was the trigger that started it. I think a lot of the work that has been done in the different IFIs and MDBs to build a legal framework around how to address fraud and corruption. I agree very much with Alex that Somebody such as the Nordic Investment Bank, by virtue of our risk profile of where we do business, may spend a greater time doing due diligence and preventative work than those who uh, are doing the projects in the more challenging environments where corruption is far more frequent. The legislative frameworks which are available within those countries may not be as robust as you need to address that. That's an advantage that we have at Nordic Investment Bank. We do have 
good countries from a reputational perspective and incidence of corruption is low, but we also have very good national organisations who are able to enforce this within it. It's a very different interplay for each of the IFIs and MDBs around the risks of where they're doing business and obviously the factors which are in those businesses, such as whether there is a sound legal framework, whether there is an instance of corruption, where it comes back. Nordic Investment Bank, okay, we're small. We did just over 50 transactions last year. The compliance office, there are three of us, whereas when you go to other IFIs, they have much larger teams based upon the number of transactions they're actually conducting and also the risks associated with the jurisdictions in which they do do business. to the debarment process. Alex, in general, how has debarment evolved over the years? There are four key developments in the evolution of MDB debarment process. I'll leave the fourth one for Mark. Firstly, in 2006, the five main MDBs, which we mentioned earlier, together with the IMF and the European Investment Bank, established a joint IFI anti-corruption task force in order to work towards a consistent and harmonised approach to combat corruption in the activities and operations of the respective member institutions. This task force recommended the publication of a uniform framework for preventing and combating foreign corruption, which illustrates the efforts by IFIs to coordinate their efforts against these sanctionable practices. The intent behind the framework, as well as its impact, cannot be overstated, especially in 2006. It transformed the landscape, which at the time consisted of disparate systems, and resulted in, finally, a harmonised set of definitions of sanctional practices, as well as investigative principles. So in other words, the IFIs, and specifically here, these five main MDBs, were starting to work together, or at least started to agree on some of the basics which then impacted their own work. Four years later, so 2010, the Agreement for Mutual Enforcement of Debarment Decisions among NDBs was signed in Luxembourg between the five main NDBs. Now, each participating institution had to enforce debarment decisions made by another participating NDB in accordance with certain conditions and terms. The famous condition, one that people remember, is the debarment period if one MDB debarred a company for less than a year that did not trigger cross-debarment. But if the debarment period was 12 months or higher, then it did trigger cross-debarment. The other conditions that people don't always remember are as follows. The external debarment decision, so that means the decision of another MDB, is based in whole or in part on a finding of the commission of one or more of the sanctional practices as defined in a framework. So what that means is, if an MDB debars an entity for a sanctional practice that is alien to this second MDB, then cross-debarment doesn't follow. The decision is made public, so cross-debarment can only take place if the original debarment period is announced publicly. 
the decision was made after the agreement for mutual enforcement. It entered into force with respect to the sanctioned institutions. So this prevents retroactive cross-debarment. The decision of the sanctioned institution was made within 10 years of the date of commission of the sanctionable practice. This is to avoid a situation where there is a too big a gap between the offence itself and then cross-debarment. And lastly, the initial sanction decision has to have taken place within a signatory, i.e. one of the MDBs. So those are the conditions for cross-debarment. So if we look at what took place in 2010, not only do we have an agreed framework, but now we actually have a cross-debarment system whereby MDBs recognise the debarment of the others. A year later, in 2011, the World Bank sanctioning guidelines were published. None existed before. These guidelines go through the base sanction for all misconduct, which is three years with debarments with conditional release. That's important, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, But also the guidelines address a range of sanction and lay out aggravating and mitigating factors. The result is that finally, entities who face debarment can see a document that goes through the sentencing process, if I can use the criminal analogy, which makes the whole system more transparent. Now, also in 2011, there was another important development, and I'll hand over to Mark now, but those four taken together, I think, are the key developments within the evolution of the MDB debarment process within that period of time. Thanks, Alex. NIB committed to and signed to the IFI Uniform Framework in 2008. I think that was a founding part and obviously a strong commitment by our members to integrity and prevention of fraud and corruption. When the cross-debarment framework came out in 2010-11, we publicly said we will adhere to the cross-debarment framework. We are not a signatory to it, but we will still seek to reference and apply a very similar approach to that. I could also say with that debarment, it's also similar to a conviction by a national authority for many institutions. In deciding whether you're you're engaging with the client, you will do your due diligence and you will understand if a client has been subject to any fine or sanction for fraud and corruption. If that was an investigation by the UK, the Serious Fraud Office, or somebody such as the US DOJ, you take that matter into account. You may decide, I wouldn't want to engage with that client because of the risk of fraud and corruption within that company. Similarly, within the MDB world, the cross-development framework has just formalised it a little more. And the fact is, there is a recognition of somebody who has been sanctioned for a case of fraud or corruption, and that is then being recognised by the other MDBs. I think that has been good to build the strength and consistency amongst the MDBs about how they treat things. Because many of the MDBs do do businesses in sometimes the same projects, but certainly in the same countries. So to have a consistent approach, I think it allows that uniformity around the whole framework, which supports general acceptance. But I think one of the key bits following on from the work in 2010 around the department and around the sanctioning guidelines which were issued was that 2011-2012, the World Bank issued its summary of the integrity compliance guidelines. The integrity compliance guidelines are those controls, measures that the MDB, certainly the World Bank, sees to evaluate a client in order for 
the issue of conditional release to be put into effect. The Integrity Compliance Guidelines provides the guidance around how somebody may get a conditional release. Some of the thinking around rolling out these uh, Integrity Compliance Guidelines was if we debar a company or an act of sanctional practices and they are debarred for three years, three years later, they would become eligible for financing again. The question being, would they have changed their ways? It's not just about holding somebody accountable. It's more a question of, well, are we actually remediating these issues? Are we actually preventing fraud and corruption coming into the project? That was the intention with setting up these uh, integrity compliance guidelines, that it would create a framework at which somebody would say, yes, I've been held accountable for that period, for that sanctional practice, and I've also remediated my integrity management program such that I do believe that I'm now qualified to be eligible for that financing from the MDBs, the IFIs, the integrity compliance guidelines themselves. Another reason why these were developed is, as I mentioned earlier, the IFIs are not subject to any national legislation. They're built through intergovernmental agreements. And because of that, it would be inappropriate to rely upon any specific jurisdiction's framework. So in developing these, which do draw upon a lot of the international standards and uh, commonalities, such as the adequate procedures for the UK Bribery Act, the evaluation of corporate compliance programmes, the USDOJ has. These are key controls, key areas, which are core to a sound anti-corruption and fraud prevention programme. That has been what the World Bank has introduced and now uses in its monitorships of debarred entities in order to put them for conditional release and to make them eligible for financing again after that period. I understand it is the only IFA that's actually published these guidelines, so some may rely upon them. Certainly at the Nordic Investment Bank, it is one that we make use of because, again, it would be inappropriate for us to impose a particular country's controls and standards in a different country. So by relying upon these guidelines, we are able to focus with engaging with the client about strengthening their controls is getting that client engagement, allowing them to work with you, understand it is their controls and these are the benefits that come with it. Having an international standard set out by the World Bank does make it certainly far more acceptable to many of them, but it allows them to work rather than us being seen to impose another country's jurisdiction on this. This, I believe, is one area that we get where all the MDBs are starting to work together. I see them more as a family. Certainly a lot of the integrity units do have a lot of collaboration and coordination, such there is consistency between the approach that has been taken and that we all benefit from reduced fraud and corruption in these projects. We eradicate the waste and we actually start to prove that corruption doesn't have to be a norm in certain countries. about the integrity compliance guidelines. Alex, in terms of their compliance function, what do these actually mean? How does that compliance function sit within the sanctions and debarment process? Yeah, let's put this in a practical example so we can 
highlight the role of the compliance officer within these systems. When firms or individuals are found through an investigation to have engaged in a sanctional practice, the MDB may impose a sanction. And one of these available sanctions is debarment with conditional release. In fact, the three-year debarment with conditional release is this baseline sanction we've discussed. The emphasis, therefore, deliberately is placed on rehabilitation and to reduce the likelihood of the sanctioned entity engaging in fraud or corruption or any other sanctional practice in the future. In other words, the incentive to complete whatever conditions are imposed in order to come off debarment when that period ends. One of those requirements obliges the sanctioned entity to develop and implement Integrity Compliance Programme, ICP, as they are sometimes called, consistent with the principles set out, and in the World Bank's case, set out in its Integrity Compliance Guidelines that Mark's already talked about. There are three aspects of this that I'll go through briefly. Firstly, invitation. So all parties sanctioned with condition for release come into the World Bank Group's Integrity Compliance Office portfolio, regardless of how the sanctions were imposed. So either it was a settlement and they put their hands up to something or it was negotiated, or the sanctions board, for example, or the SDO imposed a sanction. However the sanctions imposed, they come through the portfolio of the Integrity Compliance Office. The Integrity Compliance Office invites a sanctioned party could be entities or individuals, to engage with it in working towards satisfaction of such conditions. And then we have the steps. The compliance office first seeks to understand the matters such as the entity size, its corporate structure, the organizational structure, its operating model, geographical areas, sectoral areas of operation, risk profiles, and existing integrity compliance-related controls, including any integrity compliance program that already exists. Now, throughout that engagement, the compliance office works with that sanctions entity and sometimes also with an independent or third-party integrity compliance monitor or advisor, depending on the case, depending on its complexity, depending on the workload, to recommend enhancements to and assess the effectiveness of the entity's integrity compliance-related controls. Lastly, we have the determination. So in determining whether a sanctioned entity has met its conditions for release, the compliance officer assesses firstly to ensure that the controls are tailored to its risks and profile. Secondly, that they are consistent with the principles set out in the integrity compliance guidelines. And lastly, have a demonstrated record of implementation. So it's not just about having a expensive and shiny compliance program that sits in a filing cabinet somewhere that they can pull out whatever they need to. This is really key. This third one, I'll repeat it, have a demonstrated record of implementation. So Mark, how are the guidelines specifically applied in an NIB context? The main work of many of the integrity of the compliance officers within the IFIs is around preventing fraud and corruption within the project they finance. A lot of that effort is spent doing due diligence in selecting the right partners. Occasionally, you are going to come across a project where you do find that one of the partners have been involved in practice in the past, but you still wish to finance that project. How do you do this? Well, clearly, we need to look at how do we strengthen the clients? How do we bring them up to a standard that gives the IFI the comfort that money is not going to be lost to fraud or corruption? So we need to work with them 
to build their integrity management program. As we said, we will take the integrity compliance guidelines and use them as a baseline to reference how a company needs to strengthen its program. We will use that as the document to talk through the clients because they do have those main areas of the policy, the prohibition on corruption of facilitation payments around governance, around the integrity management program, the need for risk assessment, what controls need to be put in, financial controls, gifts, hospitality and entertainment, some of the common areas that we end up seeing as issues that lead to convictions and sanctions on fraud and corruption public officials, political and charitable donations, all these components that you can find in the integrity compliance guidelines. And we like to talk through the clients and understand, as Alex said, which are applicable to the client based upon their operations. One area which does come up in the guidelines, which is not found in many of the international standards, is this area of collective action. Now, it has been brought together for the benefit of the SMEs, for the smaller organisations, those who are facing corruption challenges on a day-to-day basis, where they do feel that the challenge of corruption is ever-present and how do they seek to address it. There has been a lot of work around collective action, bringing these actors together to bring a unified voice of this is the problems that they are experiencing as they try to do their business on a day-to-day basis. In fact, there is now the Basel Institute on Governance, which came into play, I believe, only a few years ago, but has become a significant player in building collective action programs within countries such that we do target this. This is something that obviously the World Bank um, thought was very useful and is something that other IFIs and, and people such as ourselves will also advocate to the partners and the clients about how they may tackle corruption in the projects that they face. I've got a question for Mark, if I may. The World Bank Group Integrity Compliance Guidelines are often seen as the gold standard guidelines within this world of MDBs and IFIs. To what extent do MDBs and IFIs rely on the World Bank Group guidelines? Thank you. I am only aware of these being the publicly available one. I am not aware of other IFIs having developed their own. Defining as the gold standard, I think when you are involved in the fraud and corruption space and you look at the core controls, the key controls that need to be present in a program, the World Bank Group's Integrity Compliance Guidance hits all those key points. So it's one that you can, I think, reliably utilise in a project and believe that you've hit all the key controls. Does each one need to create their own differently? I think it would be bureaucratic to do so, and I'm not sure there could be that much difference between them. I can't speak for the other institutions, but certainly they are ones which I find incredibly helpful for our work at Nordic Investment Bank in working with its clients as a reference point, and one that clients can understand and take on board. And interestingly, I've seen even outside the IFI world, I've seen examples of companies, even private sector, who have used these guidelines as a reference to help them prepare their own updated guidelines, consistent and compliant with national regulatory obligations as well. So they seem to permeate it within some of the domestic systems as well, not insofar as them being applicable, of course, but 
in terms of them being an influential document? I think it's also relevant for those who seek to get international financing, that they are able to demonstrate that they are going to an international standard rather than saying, I've picked up the US version or the UK version, that they can say, I've taken up the World Bank. I think it doesn't have national issues that come with it. And it is one that certainly if they are getting into a project involving any of the IFIs, the IFIs will recognise the standards and will appreciate the quality that hopefully their integrity management programme has been developed. Great. Well, before we have to draw our discussion of the Nordic Investment Bank to a close, I'd like to ask you both for your final thoughts. Alex, if I could turn to you first. We touched on this briefly, and it's important to reiterate it. The days of having an expensive compliance programme that tick the boxes and satisfy all possible regulators are probably gone now. There are so many other factors. And I go back to that third point I raised when I mentioned the determination that a compliance officer within the World Bank context would have. And and that step is have a demonstrated record of implementation. What does that mean? So it's not just the document itself, of course, and that's a starting point. But in a small institution, small company, there may be one compliance officer. That compliance officer may wear several hats. But depending on how big you are or how many offers you have in different countries, different people need to have different roles related to that function. How many people? Who has a responsibility? Regular training. It's not just training, but also keeping it up to date. It's a living document insofar as it has to react to the different challenges that a company has. A simple example, if a company starts doing business in a new country, the compliance program needs to reflect that, whether it's done through various edits or through an addendum. So it has to demonstrate that it works in practice and that it achieves what it says it's going to achieve. And if the focus exists on all of those factors, instead of the traditional old-fashioned view, dated view, that the focus must be on a document that looks good, then that's how companies are going to benefit from having a a proper uh, compliance programme in place. And Mark, to close us out, what are your takeaways? I think looking at the whole space, as we have done today, talking around the evolution of the debarment process, the sanctions. Ultimately, people want to achieve the world where there isn't corruption, (laughs) where we are not having to face this. I'm afraid that is going to be a very far and distant one. So what do we do? The sanctions process has evolved, and I think it is supporting that that work to have a long-term impact to the clients that we work with, to reduce the occurrence of corruption which will ultimately benefit not just the client, it will benefit the financiers who are involved. It also benefits the economy. Sanctioning, ultimately, it is about how do we remediate the company. We hold people accountable, but how do we remediate as well to prevent further occurrence? Alex, Mark, thank you both very much for joining us on this episode and sharing your experience and knowledge with our listeners. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at unspoken giants. 
Please do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giant series, where we are joined by representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John Kendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.